Revelation chapter 2, 8 to 11. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, good morning. Uh, welcome to Lord's Love on this uh, long weekend. I'm glad you're able to join in with us. If this is your very first time uh, joining uh, one of our services at Lord's Love, and I'm glad to be able to spend just a little bit of time together uh, in God's Word in this way. Is the PowerPoint back working? Okay, yeah, great. Uh, a, couple, a couple weeks ago, back in January, uh, was my birthday, and you're like, oh, thanks for letting me know, happy belated, Doug. No, that's not what I'm telling you uh, that for. I, I, I was at an uh, improv uh, show, a comedy improv show down at, down at Granville Island, and I was there with uh, my wife Jess and my brother and brother-in-law. And during the, if you don't know what improv is, they, 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 they take, sorry, my, my brother and my sister-in-law. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. I'm just testing you, you that you're listening, uh, that you're listening. So I was, I was sitting there, and if you haven't been improv before, they take uh, suggestions from the audience, and they put it into their act, and they weave it all together in some way. Uh, so someone would be like, hey, uh, what, did, what did you have for lunch? And someone would we'd all yell a bunch of things, and they'll hear the word spaghetti, and then they'll act it out and use that as part of uh, the skit. But at one point, they were asking, uh, pointing randomly into the crowd and asking people, what is, uh, what is their profession? Uh, what is their job? And they're going to use that and put that into the play. And in that moment, I was sitting there. Uh, we were just two, three rows in the front. Uh, I was like, oh, what, what am I going to say? You know, if they choose me, and it's not that it's a secret that I'm a pastor, but in that moment, I kind of froze up a little bit, hoping I didn't know what's going to happen. If they pointed to me, because uh, I saw the skits beforehand, they would take, like, that person was a student, and they kind of made fun of them, and then, you know, put it into the skit. I'm like, what if I told them I'm a pastor, and they put that into the skit, and then I get ridiculed, I get made fun of, I get laughed at, what's going to happen? And I start off with that story, because in, as I reflect upon that moment, and I was like, why, why, why did, was I so nervous? Why was I so anxious? Uh, what would have I said I think, I hope, that I would have said I'm a pastor and I wouldn't have forsaken my calling uh, in that way. But why was I wrestling with that? Has anyone had that experience, right, where the, your faith kind of comes into the culture, into the ways of the world, and you kind of hesitate, and you're like kind of maybe a little bit ashamed, and you're, you're not sure what, what you want to say? Well, we're continuing a sermon series on the book of Revelation, Future and Focus. And the whole idea, the whole premise here is that when we have the future in focus, we're able to live in faithfulness and in power and strength today. Not only in the future, but right now, this moment. And today, we're, we find ourselves in the uh, Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 to 11. So if you haven't already opened up your Bibles, you can go on ahead, whether it's on your phone or in the Word, uh, physical Bibles. And we're gonna, this letter is going to be addressed to a church called Smyrna. And today's topic might be one of those topics that's not the most popular because it's on suffering 
as a church, and you're like joining in on a first day uh, here at Lord's, they're like, oh, great. Like, I just wanted, you know, some good news. And there is good news. <laughs> There's some very good news in the midst of the topic of, of suffering. But a big idea for us this morning is this, that suffering for Christ is part of our discipleship as Christians. And you're like, well, I'm waiting for the good news still. <laughs> It'll come. But suffering for Christ is part, it's not all, but it's part of our discipleship. Discipleship meaning the ways that we follow Jesus. It's the way uh, in which we follow Christ and declare Jesus to be Lord. Suffering for Christ is part of how we're shaped and formed in our following of Jesus and our understanding of God as Christians. And suffering comes from the Latin word suffero, which comes from two words, sub, and, uh, which means under, and fero, uh, meaning to carry. So the word suffering means to carry under or to undergo something. And in the context here, it's suffering for Christ. And I'm very careful in choosing that word. It's not suffering for the sake of suffering, but suffering for Jesus. It's not self-inflicted. It's not something we, we, we look after or, or go after ourselves. It's a suffering that comes from living in this world as a Christian, as you profess your faith in Christ. And the suffering comes in whatever form or fashion, whether it's a physical kind of suffering like many Christians around the world, or maybe it's kind of a ridicule that you experience on the daily. The kind that I, I was in that moment as as ashamed as I might be in, 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 in expressing to you now, as I was sitting in that comedy theater there, if they pointed at me, like, what is your profession? What, what do I say? Like, there, there's a kind of suffering, whether it's emotional or physical or in the choices that we make, that we undergo, that we go through as Christians. And here's our map for today, uh, that we suffer for Christ. Point number one, we suffer for Christ because Jesus suffered. Number two, we suffer for Christ because we face pressure from colliding cultures. And number three, we suffer for Christ knowing greater things await us. And my hope underneath all of that is that maybe for some of us that the sermon today, the word itself will convict us and to challenge us a little bit from our own comforts and our own ways in life. And secondly, that if you're going through suffering, that you're finding life to be hard, that you find a tremendous hope in the scriptures today, that you find a hope in God, that there is a life that's beyond what we see here, that when we focus on Christ and we, he is in our lens, that it gives us strength and power to live today. But also for us to understand that suffering for Christ, it is a part of life, that it is what we experience as disciples, as followers of Jesus. And we've been seeing here that each message, as Emily, our worship leader, has been explaining, that each message is similar uh, but slightly different. Uh, Jesus first identifies and introduces himself uh, by using an image that's appropriate to the context of the church, which, which we'll see here in Smyrna. Then Jesus turns, uh, turns around and tells the church what he knows about them, what he knows about them and what he has against them. Except for the fact today in Smyrna and also in Philadelphia, Jesus doesn't actually have anything against these churches. And we've got to pay attention to that. We've got to ask the question why that is. What's also interesting is that besides Jesus not having anything against these two churches, meaning uh, Smyrna and Philadelphia, is that in these two churches, they were also, compared to the rest of the seven churches, they're the least significant. Now, backing up a little bit, remember that the book of Revelation is three parts of 
three kinds of literature. Apocalyptic, meaning it gives us vision. It's prophetic, meaning it speaks a certain truth into today. But it's also a letter. So these, what we're reading here is a real letter written to a real people in a real place in a real time. And the church of Smyrna was the least, uh, one of the least significant out of the seven. And it seems that even in saying that, it's a countercultural kind of point because it seems that it's more important to Jesus to be faithful than to be powerful or to be seen as powerful or to have accolades in the ways of the world. And then Jesus tells them, the churches generally, uh, all the churches, what the solution should be in turning around and following Jesus. And he makes a promise to them that to those who overcome, a great promise awaits them. And then he calls those who have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Now, today in this church, uh, Smyrna, it's our, our modern day known as Izmir in Turkey. It's still a church, it's still a city that exists here today. And it's been disputed by other, uh, by other cities in the area that it's the birthplace of the philosopher Homer, that this is his hometown. And it's, it used to be called uh, the, the Rose of Asia. It used to be the brightest point. It had an excellent relationship with Rome, and it was the first city t- in Asia to raise a temple to the goddess Roma in 195 BC. And because of its loyalty, it beat out some 10 other cities in building a, tem- a, a temple to the Emperor Tiberius. So there was a bid, kind of like the Olympics, you know, like who's going to host this kind of temple. And, and they, they beat out a whole bunch of other cities uh, in order to erect this uh, temple to the emperor. Then in subsequent decades, it became the center of this imperial uh, worship, imperial cult. And we kind of talked about that a few weeks ago, where it's the worship of Caesar. And it became the center point of that. And it was in AD 155 that the famous bishop of Smyrna, Polycarp, was burned alive for refusing to call Caesar Lord. So this is the setting place uh, of, this, uh, of this letter today that, that we're going to read. So to point number one here today, we see that we suffer because Jesus suffered. Revelations 2.8 starts, this letter starts in this way, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. Notice these are the words of him that Jesus speaks, that our God that we follow is a speaking God, is a God that relates to us, that speaks to us, that wants to have a conversation with us. And what does he say to the church here? That these are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. You see, as he introduces himself in that way, it connects to the church in Smyrna in a specific way. Because the church in Smyrna Smyrna was a city that prided itself to be first, a first among the cities of Asia. Also prided itself as the city that died and came back to life again because it was pillaged and it was destroyed, but it was able to rebuild itself after and come back to life after destruction. So Jesus introduces himself in this way to their own context. Uh, Jesus is also the one who died and came back to life. Jesus can relate. Jesus knows even more the pain and the suffering that they're going through, the life that they're going through. And Jesus is also the one, again, who, who died and rose again. This is a reference. It's a reference to his death and his resurrection. Just like Smyrna, which was destroyed uh, in 600 BC and came back to life in 290 AD into an even greater state, Jesus 
went through the same thing. He lived a perfect life, that he, and he, he suffered on the cross and died a death that he did not deserve, only to resurrect and to come back to life in an even more glorious state, if that's possible, that, that for us to worship him and to honor him. And though the church of Smyrna was suffering, this was the word that they needed to hear. They needed to know that their future is ultimately secure in this Jesus who can relate, who can relate to this God who died and came back to life again. And Jesus is the one alone who can make this kind of claim, uh, to be first. I don't know if you could say that. I'm the first uh, who died and came back to life again. Jesus is the one who's able to make such a claim. And, and therefore, Jesus says, I am the first and I am the last. I am the beginning and the end. I'm the alpha and the omega, as we read back in chapter one, that Jesus is the bookends of all of life, all of creation, everything that we see, that Jesus was there before and he will be there after and he's there in between walking among his churches. As Daryl Johnson, who's a local pastor and theologian, says, our lives are bracketed or boundaried not by the decisions and actions of Caesar, not by the rise and fall of Rome, nor by the rise and fall of countries like Canada. Our, bound, our lives are boundaried by him because he's the first and the last. He's the one holding us together because he knows us and he relates with us. So maybe you're going through suffering, and maybe you're going through a tough time in your life. Or maybe you're not. Maybe life has been good, and you've been wondering, what is this life really all about? The question for us, then, as we read this text is, what is our lives boundaried by? What is our life bracketed by? Or since we're talking about you know, Roman philosophers, it was the, the, the philosopher Aristotle that first started talking about telos. What is the telos of your life? What is the telos? What is the end point? What is the end goal? What is the purpose of your life? Because if it is to seek pleasure, then everything you do in life will evolve, revolve around this kind of telos, this end goal. If it's to make money and it's, if it's business, then everything will revolve around this telos. If it's your family, then everything you do in life will move towards this telos. If it's comfort and safety, then everything you do will move towards this telos. If it's God, your life will move around this telos. Now, Pastor Howard and I, we were at a conference just past, this past Friday on spiritual disciplines and John Mark Comer and Ken Shigematsu were speakers among a few. And one, one, one quote really uh, caught my attention. One thing that they said in their conversation was this, that you can be a Christian without being a disciple. I'm going to say that again. You can be a Christian without being a disciple. Well, what does that mean? It's like, yeah, you can believe in God and the ways of God, and it sounds good to you, and you have Jesus in your heart and all of that. But being a follower... Being a disciple, really living the ways of Jesus, that's a separate topic. That it's possible to be a Christian without being a disciple. And then this quote came up from Dallas Willard in his book, The Great Omission. The greatest issue facing the world today with all its heartbreaking needs is whether those who, by profession or culture, are identified as Christians will become disciples, students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of, of the heavens into every corner of human existence. We suffer because Jesus suffers. So we got to ask the questions that start off with this point is that 
if our lives, if there isn't some, some sort of suffering, if there isn't some sort of abrasion with the ways of Jesus and the ways of the world, then we've got to ask ourselves, are we really being a disciple of Jesus? Are we really following the ways of Christ? Because point number two, we suffer because we face pressure from colliding cultures in this world. How we respond to suffering ultimately shows us, as we've been seeing in only a few chapters, a couple chapters here in Revelation, that how we respond to the ways of the world, how we respond to suffering shows ultimately where our heart is. Or the word I was using before from boring from Aristotle is telos. Like, what is the end goal? Where is the purpose? Where is our heart? So we read this in verse 9 to 10a. I know your afflictions. That's Jesus speaking. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. What's that about? I'll speak about that in a little bit. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. This is a tremendous comfort to me, but also a tremendous warning to me as well, that Jesus knows about the afflictions and the poverty and the slander that Christians go through. It's, it, it's, a, it's a, a comfort because Jesus knows, but it's also a warning to me because that means as a Christian, as a disciple, that afflictions and poverty and slander, some form of it will come to me if I take my faith seriously. This word for affliction means pressure, not just any kind of pressure, but all the commentaries say this, it's an immense crushing kind of pressure. It's immense crushing that you can't no longer hold up yourself. In a church in Smyrna, it was being ridiculed. It's being ridiculed. As one commentator wrote, their shops were probably vandalized. No one did business with them. They were being mocked and bullied for their faith. It seems like some of them even came from within the church, which uses this statement about those who say they're Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Satan, the definition of the name, means accuser and adversary, that even though they say they're following Jesus, some of this persecution was coming from within the church itself. See, suffering comes from the Christian life, comes with the Christian life. It comes from following Jesus, that at some point or another, that with our culture, the Christ culture, and the cultures of the world, there's some sort of abrasion, some sort of friction that happens. But the encouragement is Jesus knows what we're facing. Jesus knows what we're facing. Jesus knows the pain. He knows the struggle. He knows the ways in which you've said no to the world and you're living in the consequence of that. He knows it because he experienced it himself and more. He knows it because he is walking among his churches and he sees and he knows and he's concerned with his people. As Eugene Peterson in his book, Along Obedience in the Same Direction, says, everything we learn about God through scripture and in Christ tells us that he knows what it is like to change a diaper for the 13th time in the day, to see a report over which we have worked so long and carefully gathered dust on somebody's desk for weeks and weeks, to find our teaching treated with scorn and indifference by children and youth, this, this, to discover that the integrity and excellence of our work has been overlooked and the shoddy duplicity of any, any and others rewarded with a promotion." And maybe this isn't the kind of suffering that we think about. 
But as a Christian, in the, in, in the ways that we live, there is an abrasion, a kind of suffering, a kind of against the grain kind of way that we live. As a people of God, we do experience a pressure, and sometimes a crushing pressure when we follow and live out our faith. But Jesus knows. He's not oblivious to the ways that you're living. And often of times, this crushing pressure that we experience is felt when cultures collide in the world. Pressure is felt when our pride is confronted and we're called into repentance. There's this pressure that we feel. Like, I know better. God, I don't want to repent. I know better. I know how to live my own life. I know what's best for me. And when we, when we go up against what God says to us, there's this pressure, this abrasion. Pressure is felt when the kingdom of light ultimately collides with the kingdom of darkness. On my first trip, on Jess and I's, uh, my wife and I's first trip to Ghana, uh, we were driving from one village to another in rural Ghana. I, I don't really remember where we were, but we we're on this dusty road. And then we, we drove by, every single day, we, almost every single day, we drove by this one village where there was this cloth hung in the middle. Uh, and one of the nights we drove by, and we finally asked, what's going on here? Because there's a big bonfire in the middle, and there's people kind of around it. And, and the pastor that was shepherding us at that moment was like, oh, yeah, this is actually a cult. Uh, and they do idol worship, and they burn things there, and they, they, they do certain things. And, and, and as we're sharing that, we decided to, to pull the, our van over to the side and to pray for this, this, for this place. And as we're praying, and afterwards, as we, as we, as we prayed, and as we debriefed afterwards, we're saying, is that why every single time we drove across and, and past this little village here, we, we sense this little shift? Like spiritually, we can't exactly point what it is, but there's like a thickening in the atmosphere, something uncomfortable uh, that's, that, 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 that's going on here, uh, something that's really off. See, there's this pressure. There's this pressure when the kingdom of light collides with the kingdom of darkness, that you sense something is off. And that's the story. The story that I just shared is common among many missionaries and people that go out and live out their faith. Every single day, you sense this darkness. You sense this pressure that's going on. And this pressure is felt for you, too. You're like, well, I'm not a missionary going to Ghana or to East Asia or to other parts of the world. Well, this pressure, as we follow Jesus, we experience it every single day, too. Every day in our schools, in work, with our friends, and with our family, perhaps the greatest pressure that I'm explaining or trying to articulate here is the pressure to compromise. The pressure to compromise, to lay our faith to the side and to compromise and, and just to go with the flow. I read in a commentary that explained compromise in this way, the difference between compromise and the life that's alive in Jesus. And the commentator explained it in this way, when you're looking at the salmon jumping in the river, they're often fighting upstream. It's the ones that are alive that's fighting and jumping against the current. It's the dead ones that are lying still. It's the dead ones that are lying still on the side. And for us, we have this pressure to compromise, to say yes to the things of the world. And maybe it's the pressure to compromise in your school. When your friend or your classmate is doing this, you're saying, you know what, I have values, but in that moment, I'm, I'm too afraid of what, the, what they're going to say to me. I'm too afraid to stand up in that moment, so I'm just going to compromise my faith, and I'm going to sit back. In our colleges and universities, maybe that happens to you too. In our marriages and in parenting, we try to, in the way that we raise our kids, 
And those that are single, to compromise what it looks like to live in singleness and in holiness. Like, compromise. We, 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 we experience the pressures of that every single day. And for me, it was revealed in the simple act of just being in a comedy room. In the story that I started off with, the pressure to compromise is to go along with the flow. See, pressure comes when we need to decide whether we will choose Jesus or something else. And as a Christ follower, I believe we go up against those decisions every single day. And even though Jesus knows, what does he say next? Even though the church in Smyrna is persecuted and they're suffering for their faith, uh, they're suffering for the decisions that they're going to make, what does Jesus say next? I wish he said, Hey, church in Smyrna, I see your afflictions. I see your poverty. I see, uh, I, I see the slander that's going on. And I'm just going to take it all away. I'm going to take it all away. It's going to be smooth sailing from then on out. No, Jesus doesn't say that. Why? He doesn't lift the pressure. Why? Because the church in Smyrna, they've done nothing wrong. They've done nothing wrong. They've only been faithful to the call to Jesus in a way, in a way, hear me well here, the pressure that they're experiencing actually confirms they have a faith in Jesus. The pressure they're experiencing confirms in them that they have this faithfulness in them. Matthew 5, 10 says this, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we also read in Romans 5, 3 to 5, that this pressure this, this is doing something within us. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has, given to, uh, who has been given to us. And in fact, the church of Smyrna was living this out in lifetime, the disciples of Smyrna were doing everything right, following Jesus. And unlike the disciples of Ephesus, which was preached last week by Pastor Howard, they, not, they, had, they had not left their first love. Unlike the Laodiceans, they were not lukewarm. Unlike the Christians at Pergamum and Theratira, they were not indifferent to and compromising to the ways of the world. The believers in Smyrna were passionate and faithful to Jesus, which led to this pressure that they were experiencing in the world. They were sold out for the kingdom of God, and this attitude led to them experiencing this pressure that really none of us really want, but they find themselves there because of their faith. And sometimes we're under this pressure too. Sometimes we're under this pressure Hopefully, because of our faithfulness to Jesus, but sometimes this pressure is because of the unwise and ungodly decisions that we make. That's not the kind of pressure we're talking about here. This is the kind of pressure uh, that we experience because of our faith in Jesus, because of this conviction we have in Jesus. As Thomas Torrance of Edinburgh from Scotland once said, a church cannot be a true church without causing trouble. Oh, a church cannot be a true church without causing trouble. Now, I don't think what he's saying, and don't hear me wrong here, I'm not saying we go out looking to cause trouble. I'm going to go out be some rebel rouser, you know, to go out, kick over some garbage cans, you know, or whatever for Jesus <laughs> in some way. 
What I'm saying, though, is that when we live out our true calling in following Jesus, a true church, a church that takes their faith seriously in Jesus, will make waves that will make the world uncomfortable. That's what we're talking about here, because it's pushing up against the ways of the world. So the question for us, and for me, as I was reading these few verses here, the, the question for myself is, is, am I experiencing pressure at all with my faith as the way I live, in the ways that I live? In what ways am I suffering for Jesus? What does it mean for me to suffer for the gospel even? What about this? How many compromises am I making every day in order to avoid any sort of persecution, any sort of suffering in our secular society? See, in the early church, suffering for Christ was seen as a privilege. It's a privilege, not just a sorrow. It was a way of confirming and affirming that they're on the right track, that they're taking their faith seriously. And historically speaking, the church has always grown the most when it's under the most pressure. And there's this trend where when the church is like the culture around us, the church starts losing its spiritual power. When the world's culture influences the church instead of the church going to influence the culture, that's when the church starts growing stagnant and still. And dare I say, could this be why we're seeing such great decline in the church in the West today? And I get it. As I was reading this, I had this internal dialogue. I was having this internal dialogue with God. I'm like, I'm busy. Don't you see all the ways that I'm, I'm living out for you? We have a lot going on, too much going on, actually. And some of us would say, there's too much going on, and I'm trying my best here, Doug. But the question is, for us is, are we compromising or are we using that as an excuse? Because I see myself finding 10 excuses for everything that God says to me. We say it's too much commitment, it's too much on my plate, we're too busy and there's too much going on. Maybe that is true, there is way too much going on. But the question we're confronted with today in this text is, where, how is my faith costing me? That is the question that we're asking today. And maybe we're not in the same context as some of the Christians in the world or even in Smyrna here. I get it. We live in 2023 Vancouver. I get it. But Christians around the world, they are suffering physically for their faith. And here in this text, we are confronted with this question that if we take our faith seriously, that it will cost us something. And maybe in the world's context, it doesn't make, maybe what it's going to cost you, maybe it comes out in this way. It doesesn't make sense to spend your time. With fellow, in, in fellowship when you can be working or doing your homework or out doing something else that's more fun. It doesn't make sense to be here today maybe when I could be outside enjoying something else, whatever that is. Maybe it doesn't, it doesn't make sense for us to give away our resources when, when, when you feel like you don't have enough already. It doesn't make sense for us. Like those are the times when maybe there is a cost to our faith in the ways that we're following Jesus, in the ways that we are following the call of God. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer says in The Cost of Discipleship, and I've quoted this numerous times throughout the years, costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow and it is, it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. 
It is costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of his son. You were bought at a price, and what has cost God cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. I don't know what you're thinking right now. Maybe it's a wrestling. Maybe it's part conviction. Maybe you're angry. I don't know what's going on. As I was thinking about how to illustrate this, I was brought back to a wedding I was doing and the conference that I was just at. God's been doing something in my life in the ways that he speaks. But I was, at a, I was away officiating a wedding last week. And they're in the middle of the wedding ceremony. As you know, if you've been to a wedding in the middle, that's when the couple gives their vows, right? Makes their promises to each other. Where it's, these words are carefully crafted, carefully crafted promises of what they'll commit to each other for the rest of their lives. And I believe that no, no couple I know ever makes these vows unwillingly or unjoyfully. Be like, ah, oh, fine, you know. <laughs> all right, all right, pastor, like, I'll make something. Like, you know, I'll make some vow. No, in that moment, they, they mean everything they say, and they take it very seriously, and they say it joyfully, and they say it gladly. And in the conference, uh, there, uh, th- this idea came, came about uh, by Tyler Stanton, one of the speakers. He's a pastor down at Bridgetown Church in Portland. He says that our vows that we make in life, they shouldn't be crushing, just like in marriage. Right? The vows that we make to each other in marriage, it shouldn't be crushing. It shouldn't be dragging our feet. It's like, okay, fine, I'll do this. But why is it when we come to our faith in Jesus, the vows that we make before Christ, that somewhere, some way along the way, that it was joyful and exciting, it became a dragging of our feet, that it became a, a tough, a, 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 a tough a, a thing, to, a tough part of our faith to, to live out. As, as Tyler Stanley also writes in his book, Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools, it has been said that in times of chaos, we do not rise to the occasion, we actually fall to the level of our training. So he's convicting us of actually where our faith was to begin with. Maybe it wasn't as strong as we thought it was. Maybe we weren't taking what we said seriously. Maybe the ways that we thought we were living actually wasn't. That this faith we had was maybe more sufficient than we thought it was. So when we experience this pressure, we fall back to this kind of the foundations of our training. And we have to ask ourselves, as we're explaining this, as maybe as we're reading through this word and we're talking about suffering for the gospel as a way of our discipleship, where do you see your heart? Where do you find your heart going right now? Are you saying this is too much? Are you saying this is too crushing? Are you saying it is too much, but God, you're with me? You're with me through it all. You're, gonna bring, you're bringing me through and moving me through into greater things. We know that something is off when we start thinking our Christian life becomes a chore. It becomes something that we just need to do. And I'm already tired. I'm already burnt out. And the first thing that goes maybe is our faith. We know that's when something is off. But there is good news. I'm not going to end the sermon there. <laughs> because we suffer in life knowing that greater things await us. 
that there is a promise through the pain why we go through what we, what we go through. 10b continues in this way, be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. And it seems like the more we get to know Jesus, I'm not sure you, you experience this, but the more we get to know Jesus, the more seriously we take our faith, the more trouble we seem to get into, the more wrestling we seem to get into. But here, the promise is this. Do not be afraid. Just be faithful. And we get this truth here that fear and faith are opposites, that we can't be, both, we can't be fearful and be faithful to God at the same time. The fear and faith are opposites. And there's four reasons not to be afraid here as we see in the passage. I'll go through this pretty quickly here. The first, pro, the first reason not to be afraid is that you're about to suffer because you're actually getting closer to Jesus. That when you're taking your faith seriously, when you're walking closer to him, you're actually going in the right direction, just like Smyrna. They haven't done anything wrong. That they're being encouraged and they're getting closer to Jesus. They're getting closer to Jesus. That the pain and suffering you're going through isn't because you've been, you're doing something wrong, but be, because you're being faithful. And the real opposition, the reason why you're experiencing, experiencing this suffering is because, because all of life if we look with the eyes through Revelation, it's never just physical, it's actually beneath. It's the spiritual realm, that you're fighting this real spiritual battle. The real opposition is spiritual. We read here numerous times that it's the devil and it's, it's Satan that's kind of pulling the strings behind the scenes, that that's the fight that we have. We see Paul's language in Ephesians 6, 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces, of evil in the heavenly realm. So when you live out your faith seriously and you experience this suffering, this kind of pain, this kind of ridicule, this kind of persecution, it's because you're actually getting closer to Jesus and you're following this road. Secondly, another reason to be faithful is because this is a test. This is, the, this is a test and it will pass. This is the moment to test your faith. So we're actually, wow. My faith is deemed worthy enough to be tested. <laughs> My faith is deemed worthy enough to be tested so that I'm, go I'm going through these temptations. It's because I have something to fight for and to fight with. If I was coasting and life really isn't a struggle, there are no temptations. That's actually when we need to be asking the, harder, like the, 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 the tougher questions. That's not a place we should be in. Thirdly, suffering is real, but it's relatively short. We read there in the passage that it's only for 10 days. And scholars are like, is it literally for 10 days? Most likely not, because everything in Revelation is symbolic. Uh, but 10, it could signify that it's brief. Uh, Daniel was tested for 10 days with the limits to what he could eat. Uh, it's short, uh, but it's also long enough to experience deep and real pain. Because 10 days of suffering, like if someone's torturing me for 10, like, like you know, that, that 10 days is, a, is, is enough. That's more than enough to, to do that. Uh, but the number 10 also uh, stood for human completion, right? There's, there's 10 fingers to uh, the human beings. There's 10 toes, uh, usually, uh, in, uh, in the human being, uh, for humans. So no matter what Jesus meant here, it's, it's clear that Jesus means that this is a statement, though, that he is ultimately in control, that the suffering that we go through is short uh, compared to eternity, uh, compared to the eternity that we have with them. 
that the pain that you go through, the suffering that you go through, it is manageable. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you except what is, what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He'll not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. No matter the case, God is in control and he will put limits to the period so that it's not too great, but it's also going to be terrible. <laughs> it's going to be a real suffering nonetheless. But lastly, Jesus makes and he keeps his promises no matter what it is that you go through. And he promises in verse 10 that you will receive a crown of life and he promises that you will not be hurt by the second death. By the second death. The crown of life, it doesn't speak of a royalty kind of crown, but an athletic kind of crown that the Smyr people in Smyr Smyrnans, I don't know what the right word is. <laughs> the church in Smyrna, uh, they're, they're more used to. This athletic and military metaphor linked with the idea of overcoming, that for those that win the race, they get this crown this crown of life here that Jesus uh, uses, but you not be hurt at all by the second death. That for those of us that believe in Jesus at the end of our life, as the word goes, there are two things that are sure in life, taxes and death. <laughs> that for those of us that have this life that's secure in Jesus, that second death isn't really, a, that isn't a death at all. It's just a sleep. And we wake up in the arms of heaven in heaven one day before him and we go up before him and he says well done good and faithful servant well done good and faithful servant you will not be hurt but you will be with jesus forever in paradise a place with no more pain no more suffering nothing only goodness only gladness only joy as we're before god forever and jesus he makes this promise that you if you endure if you if you're faithful in this life jesus will be there in the end. Now, Smyrna was willing to listen. And the question is, are we willing to listen today? And the proof that they're willing to listen is by their suffering. And that's a challenge for each and every single one of us. And I heard this voice as, I'm, as I was preparing for this, that isn't it so much easier just to not do this? That there is actually one way out of this pressure. Just don't take your faith seriously. Just don't take your faith seriously. Don't be serious about loving Jesus. Just go with the flow of the culture. Get settled. Get comfortable. Take the water down, cheap grace, Bonhoeffer worded version of Christianity. Just settle for the status quo, and there will be no pressure at all, and life will be great. No pressure, no headaches, no suffering, no pain. But not only would that be the case, but there'll also be no passion. There'll be no life now or ever if that's the life that we choose. But Shane Claiborne, he says in The Irresistible Revolution, and I think that's what our world is desperately in need of, in contradiction to what I just said, <laughs> in need of, Lovers who are building deep, genuine relationships with fellow strugglers along the way and who actually know the faces of the people behind the issues they're concerned with. That God is calling us not to turn a blind eye and to take the easy route, but to follow him as our way, as our discipleship. 
So out of the seven churches, Jesus kept his word because out of the seven churches, only Smyrna is left today as the city of Izmir. He said, I won't forsake you. I'll be with you. But all the other churches, all, all, the, other, all the other cities are gone. But he's kept his promises to Smyrna. And the question for us as we end here is, will the church, will our church of our time stand when pressure increase? And will you and I stand the test as well as life gets tougher? If you don't know where to start, this Wednesday is a great time to start. It's 40 days to Easter. It's Lent. Lent starts this, East, uh, this Wednesday, 40 days all the way to Easter. And Lent is a time where, we give, where, where Christians either give up something or take up something that will help them prepare and reflect every single day on the resurrection of Jesus. And maybe that's going to be your suffering, your willing suffering as you go through that in a way of choosing life and saying, God, I want you. I want to be reminded. I don't want to be lukewarm anymore. I don't want to say yes to the ways of the world. I'm going to start this Wednesday, this with a simple way, whatever it is, in following God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your convicting word today. That as convicting as it is, it is actually a word of grace and truth because you actually want life in us. So, Father, I pray for all of us that are struggling, maybe to compromise, and we're struggling and we're wavering. We're saying, ways the, we're saying yes to the ways of the world, but we've also been experiencing that it actually doesn't satisfy. It actually doesn't fill us. Father, in this moment, we say yes to you again, that you would fill us, our lives, the Holy Spirit, that you will be present in our lives, that you will give us love, you give us peace, you give us joy, a joy that is unshakable in you. And Father, I pray for all of us that are suffering, suffering and struggling, that you would help us to fix our eyes on Jesus and to know, God, that through the pain, through the struggle, that one day you're going to meet us and you're going to say, well done, good and faithful servant, and place the crown, the victor's crown on us and say, well done. You've made it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.